This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to the podcast. This is the Other States of America History Podcast. I am Eric Giannis, your host. In our last episode on New Sweden, we saw the back and forth rivalry between Johan Prince and Peter Stuyvesant. And at the very end of it, Johan Prince packed it up and he went home, having served three times the amount of time that he planned on serving as director of New Sweden. He actually went to New Amsterdam and said, Stuyvesant, I'm done. Send me home. And Stuyvesant was more than happy to send him home along with a large contingent of the colony. And this would leave New Sweden more vulnerable than ever before. But just as Stuyvesant thought, whoa, maybe my luck has changed. Maybe I'll be able to come down and into the Delaware River Valley. Maybe I'll take out New Sweden now. We see the beginning of the First Anglo-Dutch War. So now, right around the year 1654, instead of Stuyvesant in New Netherland worrying about the couple hundred Swedish settlers that make up all of New Sweden, he has to worry about the tens of thousands of English settlers and what makes up the colonies of New England. And so the next director of New Sweden, he's going to luck out because Stuyvesant is going to be distracted for a couple of years. So unlike his predecessors... New Netherland isn't going to be a problem if you play your cards right. And the next director of New Sweden is going to be this guy named Johan Riesing. His last name is spelled R-I-S-I-N-G. So you would say usually Rising. But they, uh, they pronounce it back then in Sweden something close to Riesing. So Johan Riesing. He's going to be an economist. And he's going to be a commerce official inside of the Swedish government. I'm not sure if he had any military experience because that would be awfully helpful at this time and place, but it doesn't appear that he does. And as we move further along in the story, you're going to see that he was woefully unprepared to deal with any sort of military engagement. Johann Riesing and a huge number of new colonists came over on this big old boat called the Orn or the Ornin. I've seen several different sources that give the boat a slightly different name. And this thing went through quite an odyssey, a literal ancient Greek odyssey to get to New Sweden. This ship coming from Sweden was packed with new colonists. So much so that diseases broke out and a plague swept over the population of the ship. During the first or second wave of this plague, while they're still at sea, they're spotted by Turkish pirates. In order to scare off these Turkish pirates, they brought everybody up on the top deck, including probably what would have been about a third of the population who were deathly ill and they propped them up between the well people and they gave them weapons or other implements of destruction to wave at the Turkish pirates and let them know, hey, there's a lot of us here. We all have weapons and we're all ready to fight. And the Turkish pirates went their separate way. But that wouldn't be the end of the troubles for this ship. There was a passenger on board keeping a record of the happenings on the ship. His last name is Lindistrom. I hope I'm saying that somewhere near correctly. And he reports, among all of those suffering from the disease and from the heat and the lack of proper nutrition, that people began to see things. And on March 17th of that year, they spot off the side of the ship mermaids. 
Now, this is what Lindstrom writes about that incident. It happened, looks like, 26th of March, around there. I shall now write about the sweet voices of mermaids and sirens who deceive many people. When a storm is approaching, they are seen and heard in the trade winds, more than anywhere else in the Atlantic. The mermaid floats on the water, her more than body length glittering golden hair floating after her, shimmering delightfully and seductively in the sun. The mermaid, sparkling with her alabaster beauty, sits upon her waist in water holding a mirror in her hand. Then the sirens come and play on sundry instruments, which sound so delightful that one is compelled to jump into the water in the belief that the heavenly kingdom is at hand. Some of those on board jumped in the sea, especially those who are ill and affected with delirium. Some of them could be saved, but those who disappeared at night through the cannon ports we could do nothing for. Therefore it is of utmost importance to pray to God for his merciful protection. Now if you didn't jump into the water because of the mermaid sighting, maybe a couple days later when you ran through a hurricane, you might have been thrown off deck as many were at that point in time. A sickness, pirates, mermaids, and a hurricane. Lindenstrom also wrote about the conditions on the ship. He who cannot pray to God may be put upon a ship for such a long and dangerous journey. He will then learn to pray. Ooh, super spooky. So yeah, this guy is saying basically, if you don't believe in God, if you don't pray to God, if you were on this ship with us, you would start praying. And as the ship leaves the Atlantic Ocean and is going up the Delaware River, its destination being Fort Christina, it runs into, of course, Fort Casimir, the Dutch fort set up by Stuyvesant that is meant to block trade in and out of the riverway. The Dutch have been charging tolls for the Swedes to go in and out. And Johan Riesing decides... Fort Casimir has to go. For one, it's again the harassment of the Swedes inside their own colony. But the second reason, and it's a very smart reason, but it will end up defining Johann Riesing's career in this position. He figures that if you have a Dutch fort on the Delaware during the First Anglo-Dutch War, and it comes down to New England versus New Netherland, well, New England is going to win in a hot minute. And then they're going to want to rid the entire continent of Dutch power and influence. So having a Dutch fort on the Delaware is almost like inviting the English to come take over the Delaware and New Sweden with it. So before he even gets off the boat, he decides, I'm taking out Fort Casimir. Now, this is an extreme move. Now, remember, before we had Johann Prince, we had Peter Stuyvesant, and they'd be building competing forts, trying to command control of the riverway. They would have these games of chicken, these showdown displays on the river between boats, but to go by force and take over the other guy's fort, well, that that's an act of war. So the Orn comes across Fort Casimir, built on the modern-day site of Newcastle, and he quickly sums up that the fort, having lost some reinforcements to reinforce other parts of the colony closer to the English, was ripe for the taking. And he did it. He took the fort without a shot being fired without a, a, a cannonball being lobbed into the fort. No, no violence occurred, and the fort was the Swedes. And in that one move, the Swedes managed to kick the Dutch 
out of that power center of the Delaware River Valley. Fort Casimir became Fort Trinity because they took it on Trinity Sunday. And because it was a peaceful surrender, the men were all allowed to leave unmolested, if they so chose. And then the people living around what was Fort Casimir, who had Dutch loyalty, they were allowed to stay if they pledged loyalty to the Swedes. Of course, if you decided to stay, you were drafted for about two weeks to help rebuild and reinforce what was once Fort Casimir, now Fort Trinity. Now, there's a better than zero chance that Fort, Cas Fort Casimir was taken by the Swedes based on stench alone. Because when the Orn showed up, showed up at Fort Christina and the settlement around there, it was so stinky from all the people and all the disease and bodily fluids that you can imagine that they could not get the colonists to help them unpack the ship or carry the unwell off the ship. It was so stinky. People, no, no, but nobody wanted even to go near that ship. Now, our nose today is not accustomed to very much human or biological smell, but the 17th century nose could really take a wallop. I can't imagine how stinky this ship was. So maybe he just took the, the maybe he took the fort on stench alone. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's likely he, that wasn't the reason, but, you know, and, and it could be. And, of course, the sickness on the ship spread all throughout New Sweden, all the European settlers. And then, of course, it devastated the native population in the area, allies to New Sweden. We don't know exactly what that sickness was, but this would be an episode you would see over and over again in the colonization of the Americas, where you have Native American populations who have little to no resistance to these old world diseases. Now, before Riesing arrived, the person who was in temporary control of the colony was Johann Prince's son-in-law. And by all accounts, he did a okay to slightly neglectful job of running the colony. A lot of colonists tried to escape. Because remember, some people in the colony were there not by choice. It wasn't a penal colony, but some people were there for punishment. A couple colonists tried to go down to Maryland. And the friendly natives in the area to the Swedes, they went and they captured those people. But some of them put up a fight, and there was a battle in the woods. And some of the natives could only bring back, bring back the heads of the settlers who tried to run away. And the natives said, we did all we could to get them, and this is the part of them that we could bring back. This is a brutal time. And now that Johan Riesing is here, it's going to get a little more stable. One main reason for why the colony is going to stabilize during this period is that the ship that just came in carried so many colonists that now the population of the entire colony is going to swell to over 300. And in fact, maybe as many as 150 people were on that ship. So maybe half the colony came from this one boat and they were used to Johann Riesing and they were okay with him and they were used to him as the leader. So somewhere in my rambling on, I'm trying to say here that he established himself as the legitimate ruler of the colony, and he brought fresh blood to the colony so that all those older problems were kind of in the minority now among the colonists who are still there. One thing Riesing did, because, again, he was a commerce official, he knew that the lifeblood of this entire colony were the friendly natives. So he went to these tribes that were affected by the diseases that came off of that boat that he came on, and he offered them gifts of retribution which is exactly how the Native American society deals with issues like that. So he's a very smart man and probably read a lot of uh, logs and journals about New World Natives to understand that if there is some sort of 
thing that is done unjustly onto a people, you need to reconcile it with gifts. That's the Native American way. And so he gives them gifts to say, I'm sorry about this disease that ravaged your people. He also changed the capital of the colony from the island of Princehof, where Johann Prince, he owned it and he administered the colony from there back to Fort Christina. Now, of course, that island was privately owned by Johann Prince. And so under a new governor, it can't really be the center of the colony. So he moved it back to the fort, which will, again, be in and around what is now Wilmington, Delaware. And by all accounts, he was a he was an okay leader. He established a fund for the poor. Now, considering the whole colony at most was 350 people, the fact that the poor were taken care of from that small number is pretty significant. So they had at least three beggars and they were taken care of to some degree. Now on to the material culture of the colony. If you went over to New Netherland, and actually the archaeologist Paul Huey, when he was digging down in Albany with a drill into where he thought he, the location of Fort Orange originally was, he hit Delftware. He hit fine china, little bits of fine china that had been thrown into a refuse pile. So he was hitting like luxury goods that you wouldn't normally associate with the frontier of any colonial endeavor. And yet here we are at Fort Orange, the, the northern tip of the colony. And all of a sudden, you're digging up fine china. What's going on? Well, New Netherland, the core of it, we have merchant traders. They're there to make money. And if they're living there, they're going to bring their luxury with them. New Netherland had more luxury goods and just the little finer things in life than New England would ever have at, during its existence uh, alongside New Netherland. And New Sweden would never have the types of goods that New Netherland had. These were rugged farming folk. And all the money and all the supplies from the Native American fur trade go to the company. So the people were salt-of-the-earth folk. They weren't the merchant traders you associate with New Netherland. But this worked out to their advantage because in New Netherland, you had merchants who would basically, at times, not all the time, but in a very small minority of the time, kidnap and mistreat Native Americans. They're, they had a trading relationship, and that's about it. And you had people who were there just to make money and go back home. So things could get vicious, and misunderstandings could happen, and values are different between Native American groups and European merchant traders. But here, in New Sweden, we have rural, poor Swedish and Finnish farmers. And very few in number, exceedingly few in number, far less than in New Netherland. So the Swedes never populated enough to really bother the Native Americans around them. In the sense of, oh no, their numbers are swelling and we're losing our lands to them. The Swedes just nestled themselves in there quite nicely, and they were a way that a lot of these friendly tribes around them could get all sorts of goods they never had access to before. And one tribe in particular, the Susquehannock, and I believe I'm saying that wrong, but I'm going to keep saying it that way. They acquired firearms from the Swedes, and that was very important in their struggle against their cousins, the Haudenosaunee to the north. They were both an Iroquois people, and they both had access to guns. These poor rural farmers had similarities to the Native American population. They were farmers. They made a lot of textiles out of local plant life. And the Native Americans could teach these European farmers how to, instead of using plants from Europe, how to use corn husks to make basic textiles, how to make baskets, things like that. And they traded skills back and forth. And of, of course, the Europeans would always have a supply of metal tools in order to replace more fragile or less useful wooden and stone tools. 
So it was mutually beneficial. And the two cultures had a level of understanding that was greater than we see in New Netherland and certainly in New England. Only probably the French had such a, uh, such a deep and accurate understanding of Native American life as the Swedes in the 17th century. So because the Swedes were so few in number, they were so helpful, they had some similarities, and they supplied them with essential goods at this point in time, the Native Americans were more kind to the Swedes than really any other European group without coercion being involved. The governor of the Virginias was actually present in New Sweden, probably trading tobacco back and forth, something like that. Might have been over the table, might have been under the table and illegal. Who knows? But anyway, he was into Sweden and he was astounded at what he witnessed one day. The Sesquihannock or Sesquihannock or Canistoga or Canisoda or they have tons of names. Anyway, this tribe, this Iroquois people tribe, they gifted New Sweden a huge plot of land west of the Delaware River. This made it so the, the colony of New Sweden actually occupied territory in four current U.S. states, or four of the original 13 colonies, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, and Pennsylvania, a massive chunk of land. And the Virginian governor, he was very impressed also because he tried to buy that land from them previously for a substantial amount of trade goods, and they were outright refused. Meanwhile, they turn around and just give it to the Swedes. So as much as historians praise the French for having great relations with the Native Americans, especially compared to the English and the Dutch and the Spanish especially, the Swedes in this often overlooked chapter of American history, they must have been good people towards the people who were native to that land. And so that's just something I wanted to stop and give them a little credit for. But now it is time for the turning of the tides. If you remember and you watched our last episode, which was on New Netherland, the whole first season of this podcast is one long story. Doesn't matter what, what the title is. Listen to it in order. It all makes sense. If you remember in our last New Netherland episode, at the end of it, Peter Stuyvesant gets permission to invade New Sweden. Now, this is because the First Anglo-Dutch War had ended and the report of the taking of Fort Casimir made it back to the Amsterdam chamber of the Dutch West India Company. And they were so outraged by it. Again, Johan Riesing overstepped his bounds. And instead of playing this game of chess along the river of who can build the better fort, have the stronger forces, block off trade, he went and physically took over another fort belonging to the Dutch. And so that was it. The Amsterdam chamber was done with them. And now Peter Stuyvesant's going to invade New Sweden. The Dutch West India Company had recently lost all of their major possessions in Brazil. It was over for them because that was the honeypot of the entire company up to this point. Now they're at their pivotal moment here where they have to start looking at other parts of their business that they've been ignoring. And in the future, they're going to find out that the slave trade is really where the money is. But at this point in time, they're looking at New Netherland and saying, what, what, what could be of it? And so for once, they're actually putting a lot of thought into this colony. So what they're going to do is borrow a, they're gonna borrow an army and a navy, basically from the town of Amsterdam, the city of Amsterdam, the great mighty city of Amsterdam. And it's gonna consist of seven ships, 317 soldiers, 
Of course, the ships are full of cannons. Two cannons to carry over land. It's going to have three smaller yachts. It's going to have one flyboat that itself has four guns. Now the main ship, called the W-A-G-H. The Fwag, or the Wag, or the Fwag. I don't know. I don't know 17th century Dutch. But anyway, the main ship has 36 cannons on it. And Stuyvesant drafts up, or takes volunteers from the colony itself, and he amasses an army of somewhere between 600 and 1,500 men. That's a, a wide range. But it's going to be such a large number that the estimates are going to be all over the place. It's going to be a massive force for this time and place. He has the borrowed army navy. He has his own ships, his own men, and he even he even drags in a French privateer who's just near New, New Amsterdam. He just say, hey, you want some work? And he hires him on the spot. This is a massive invasion force. And in fact, the historian J. Franklin Jameson, wonderful writer on New Netherland and everything about it, he says that in August of 1655, Stuyvesant had the largest military force which had yet been seen in the Atlantic colonies. So up to this point in time, he has the record. Stuyvesant is the most powerful military leader among the Europeans along the North American coast right now. And this mighty force is amassing on the shores and on the docks of New Amsterdam, the future New York City. Stuyvesant basically shuts the colony down. He doesn't let any ships out. And the few ships that beg to leave because they have perishable goods, let's say, they have to leave under a heavy deposit. So if the information about what's going on here gets out, we're taking so much money from you or, you know, that you're leaving with us. And so he knows that he's causing a huge rumble right now with all these men and ships. And through the observations of Native Americans in the area, Johan Riesing of New Sweden gets word of these forces amassing. And he's rightfully concerned. He sends two men there as spies. And they go to New Amsterdam, and they make it back as quick as they can because they report there's at least 700 to 800 men in the city alone. And their intended target is the Delaware. And if you have not been paying attention up to this point, the Delaware is the heart, the lifeblood, the life source. It is the center. It is the, the beginning, the end of the colony of New Sweden. And the Dutch are coming, rising in a flurry, summons a council of war. He brings together the colony and they develop a plan in case Stuyvesant decides to go forward with his plan. Now, the plan that Riesing comes up with is to gather as much of the military force of the colony that he can and concentrate it at Fort Trinity. Remember, that's the former Dutch fort that the Swedes took over. He's going to take everything he can and put it in that one fort, but then he's not going to be in charge of it. He won't even be there, in fact. It's going to be this guy named Sven Skut. I believe I'm saying his name right. Or Skut. His name's Sven. His first name is Sven. Sven will be in charge of the fort, and he will fend off the Dutch. And this time, unlike so many times before, the rumors of war are correct. The Dutch are coming. They're coming up the Delaware River. They're coming in sight of Fort Trinity. They're passing by the fort on the river. Sven is supposed to shoot a warning shot over their heads, saying it's time to deal with us. We need to come to terms with one another. It's time to talk. You're passing our fort. What are you up to? He doesn't do it. 
Instead, he allows Stuyvesant to land and disembark on the north side of the fort, amass all of his forces, consisting of the man who named the fort, Stuyvesant himself, named it Fort Casimir, the, the guys who built the fort, the guys who designed the fort, the guys who lived by the fort until the Swedes moved in, and then a huge army of other people, way more than the people in the fort. Stuyvesant approaches the fort for negotiations, and he says to them, if you don't surrender this fort to me, I'm going to kill all of you. Not just everyone in the fort. I'm killing everyone who lives around the fort. You're all dead. There's no negotiating if you give me any resistance whatsoever. Now, this is classic Peter Stuyvesant negotiation. Start with a strong hand. Ask for way more than you could ever reasonably get, just in case they accept it. And Sven Scoot, he surrenders the place without a fire being shot. A peaceful surrender. The amassing of forces to fight the Dutch were given up to the Dutch without any fight. And so now they had access to the fort. They changed the colors, and of course they renamed it again Fort Casimir. The officers were treated kindly, but they were contained, detained rather, so that the leadership and the supplies of the colony can't make it back into Johann Riesing's hands to offer any more resistance. Stuyvesant essentially takes the colony at this point, but there's more to the story. Stuyvesant deports these military leaders to New Amsterdam, and then he sends word to Johann Riesing, basically saying, hey, I got your leadership. I got your biggest fort. I got all the supplies you stocked it up with. You need to surrender to me unconditionally. It's over. I want all of it. Using Native American runners, Stuyvesant and Riesing have this conversation back and forth through letters. And Riesing, to his credit, doesn't just give up. It gets to the point that Stuyvesant has to go to him at Fort Christina and do basically what he had to do at Fort Trinity to this center, central fort, basically the capital of the entire colony. And he basically surrounds the fort for about six days. No shots are being fired. No one's being hurt. But he's making his presence known, and there's no in and out of the fort. Now, because of the two different calendars used at this time, and the short span of six days, the, the events get murky, the order of events. But over this six-day period, Stuyvesant falters a little. And it's the, it's the first time I've seen him falter so far in our story. He'll usually keep going until surrender or retreat is inevitable. But in this case, when it looks like he's going to take over all of New Sweden, it's going to be over, and it looks like Riesing is going to relent soon, he suddenly switches up what he wants out of Riesing. And he says, wait, 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 wait a minute. I'll let you keep this little chunk of the colony, and then we'll develop a mutual defense pact with one another. We'll be friends. We'll be allies together. Now, why did he do that? Why did he flip so quickly in this small period of time where it looks like victory is inevitable. Well, again through friendly natives, he gets word that the city of New Amsterdam and the lower part of New Netherland is under attack. Yes, although he has the greatest force ever amassed of a professional army on the Atlantic coast, he has moved his center of power from New Amsterdam down to the Delaware leaving exposed all the most valuable places and most populated places in the colony. And Native American tribes in the area 
who were perhaps allied with New Sweden, like the Susquehannock, or the Susquehannock, and those tribes that might still be holding a grudge from Keefe's war are sniffing around. They're rising up. And Stuyvesant just gets the vague word that attacks are occurring at the very heart of his own colony. And so in this one moment in his life, he's not a certain man. He goes back and forth. He stutters for a moment. He stumbles. And he offers this halfway agreement, this resolution that involves both colonies surviving. Of course, the deal falls through because his orders are to take the colony totally. And Riesing's orders are a completely different set of things. If Riesing was to allow the Dutch to just take half the colony, well, he would get in trouble. Likewise, if Stuyvesant disobeys his orders and instead makes a mutual pact, a mutual defense pact with the Swedes, he would be in defiance of his own orders. And especially with such an overwhelming force and this borrowed army that the company is going to have to pay for, Stuyvesant is going to get in trouble if this doesn't pay off. And so the deal falls through. And to add a little more evidence to this argument I'm making that Stuyvesant was shook by this entire thing. He had his family on the island of Manhattan during this time. And these are where these Indian attacks are occurring, these Native American attacks, these American Indian attacks. Now, he had 10 French mercenaries guarding his family. That's how concerned he was for his family's safety. He also had a couple dozen slaves, and he had breweries, and he had farmland. He had tons of things to lose in this. And so for this one moment in his life, instead of being certain of victory or defeat, he was in this middle zone. And since many of these Native American tribes that attacked New Amsterdam and the surrounding areas, like Pavonia and Staten Island, since they were allied with New Sweden, it's likely Riesing got word of what was going on. And so he, he said, hmm, what, what else do I have left? What tricks do I have left? What can I lay on Stuyvesant? How can I get out of this? Is there any tool left at my disposal? And he says to him, you know, if you do this, there will be repercussions in Europe. Now, remember at this time, the Dutch and the, and the Swedes are not at war with one another. But they will be, actually, in a year or two from this time. But right now, they're at peace with one another. And Sweden is a great military power. Although smaller in population than the Netherlands... They're much more unified and much more tr they have a much more trained military and a stronger military tradition. And so Riesing says, if you take this colony over, oh my goodness, Sweden's going to come down on the Netherlands and, and your bosses in the Netherlands aren't going to like that you caused this. Of course, that future war would be inevitable no matter what happened here during the six-day period. And the Dutch could successfully argue that the entire colony of New Sweden outside of the gift of land that was given to them by the Susquehannock was part of New Netherland, and it was taken by the Swedes during a period of peace. So why can't the Dutch just take it back while the two countries are at peace with one another? So if you were a Dutch lawyer at the time, you could successfully argue that taking the entire colony is not an act of war. Eventually, over this six-day negotiation period, Riesing finally at the end of it, agrees to surrender the colony to Stuyvesant in total. In the terms of the surrender, the residents of New Sweden were allowed to stay if they would pledge an allegiance to the Dutch. And if they wanted to go back to Sweden, they would be sent back to Sweden on the Dutch dime. They would also be officially allowed to keep their Lutheran religion and worship publicly, 
which is a huge turnaround for the New Netherland colony in general, which condoned other religions, but they had to be worshipped privately. Meanwhile, the Calvinists, the Dutch Reformed Church, reigned supreme. But if you thought this was a peaceful takeover, as many books will tell you, that is a myth. There was widespread looting up and down the Delaware of all the New Sweden settlements. To this day, we don't know the extent to which Stuyvesant condoned these actions. But in this one case, we can assume that Stuyvesant maybe didn't have total control over all of his men, considering he had various mercenaries from the Netherlands, French pirates under his charge. That when it came time to surrender the colony, maybe some of these groups of people took it upon themselves to ravage the land. Or maybe Stuyvesant, wordlessly through his underlings, allowed a certain measure of looting to appease his men. We don't really know the answer to this, but certain sources describe women being dragged from their houses. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but you can imagine the worst definition of what that means. There are even reports of livestock and horses being needlessly killed in a colony that would now be part of New Netherland. There would be no reason to kill livestock that would now be part of the bounty of your colony. Also, the settlement around Fort Christina, present-day Wilmington, Delaware, was burned to the ground. Again, why are you burning this settlement to the ground if there's a peaceful surrender, if shots weren't fired, and if this colony is going to now be part of your colony? It, to, to my, to, in my opinion, I don't think Stuyvesant would have ordered this. I don't see the, the edge he would have gained from it after the fact. Rather, it seems more likely in most of these cases, he simply didn't have control of these men, which is rare for Stuyvesant and something that he probably would never want to admit. Another thing that happened is Princehof Island, where Johann Prince set up the capital of New Sweden, his personal estate for a while. His daughter, who lives there with her husband now, she went around to all the women, knowing what was going to happen, and had as many as they could, as many women as she could round up, hide their valuables on the island, on the structures, in the structures, rather, in order to kind of seal up some of this wealth from all the pillaging, and that they could later recover, thinking that the island would be safe. Nope. Princehof Island was invaded. Everything was tore up. Everything was plundered. And there are even reports of the Dutch stealing timbers out of the local churches. So no, it wasn't completely peaceful. Despite the Swedes surrendering without causing violent resistance, the Swedes were the victim of the plundering of these Dutch troops. Now, Riesing, who of course should be blamed for all of this, because the event that precipitated this invasion, of course, was him taking over Fort Casimir. So he should be to blame for all of this, but you know who he blames? And his official excuse back to the Sweden South Company, he says the fault lies with Sven Scoot, the guy I put in charge of the fort. He failed to hold back the Dutch. This is all his fault. Now, I haven't seen this. I haven't seen any author suggest this, so, but it might not be an original argument. But in my mind, it seems like Riesing set up Sven Scoot to be the scapegoat, to take the fall for Riesing. Think about it. He collected... All the supplies of the colony, most of the officers, the strongest men, all the ammunition, put it in one fort, put a different person in charge of it, and then he went back to basically Fort Christina and just allowed the Dutch to do what they were going to do. 
It seems like Reesing set Scoot up to take the blame for the whole thing. That's my personal conspiracy theory. And I believe about... I'm about 60-40 on that one right now. So, you let me know what you think. But among the officers involved in this, it was very cordial. And Stuyvesant and Reesing, they sat down and they compiled a list of possessions in the colony that will now be transferred over to the Dutch from the Swedes. It was part of the agreement. And that list of stuff would go back to Sweden. So in the case that Sweden and the Netherlands go to war and they sit down at a table afterwards and resolve things, this would be something that would be thrown onto the table saying, hey, well, you know, you took all this stuff from us in the Delaware River Valley. Maybe you should throw us this island in the Caribbean. Something like that. So at the end of the day, it did all wrap up with a tidy bit of paperwork. But this, my friends, is the end of the independent New Sweden. It is over. The story is done. I didn't give it away in the title because that would be lame. But this is it. This is our last episode on New Sweden. It is no more. I have a very disparaging quote here from Algot Matson. It might be Algo Matson. I don't know. In the book, New Sweden, Dream of an Empire. Thus, New Sweden was finally and truly lost. The dreams of empire, ending in a small bridgehead on American soil, had ultimately only demonstrated an enormous range of sacrifice and human suffering, which seemed in the final moments of failure to be totally meaningless. Well, that's the kind of quote that'll make you want to stick your head in an oven. So, you know, I I really don't have anything to console you if you wanted to hear more about this story. We're at the end of it. 1655 is the end of New Sweden. One of Riesing's officer, named by the last name of Von Elswick, upon the surrendering of the colony, said to Stuyvesant, Today it is me, tomorrow it will be you. Now this may be completely legendary, and this is a warning for you fans of New Netherland, because New Netherland's story is going to end this season. So I'm going to cover the legacy of New Sweden towards the end of this episode, but right now we have to talk about the immediate fallout of this invasion of New Sweden. Because New Sweden is about to reach a hand out from the grave and smack around New Netherland one more time. One last time, rather. Remember the rumors that had so shaken Stuyvesant that he almost went back on his plan to take over New Sweden totally. Back in New Amsterdam and in the lower half of the Hudson River Valley, natives were attacking. It turns out these natives were probably the Susquehannock and some tribes of the Lene Lenape, probably because they were allied with New Sweden. Now, we know this now, but if you look at any history book on New Netherland, all the way up until the 20th century, this uh, episode we call the Peach Tree War, or the Peach War, authors, historians, everyone, we, they didn't know the exact cause of this war, because the chroniclers at the time didn't understand Native American politics. They didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. And so this war called the Petrie War, only in the 20th century had we really realized that that war was caused by the natives who were allied with New Sweden. So while Stuyvesant moved the bulk of his military force, the largest ever assembled of a professional army on the Atlantic up to that time, down onto the Delaware, the natives moved in. And it's said that they showed up by the hundreds on Manhattan Island, and they were running through the streets, not causing any violence but just being there for no apparent reason. And this, of course, caused everyone to gather the town militia to face off with them. And they both stood looking at one another 
gathered in groups, peaceful but quiet. There was tension in the air. And as happens in many on many of an occasion, an arrow goes off. And an arrow plunges deep into the chest of a Dutch militiaman. And that causes outright chaos. Of course it would. And the Native Americans are pushed to the river's edge and they're pushed out of Manhattan Island. But they aren't done yet. Once they're back into their canoes, they show up in the other Dutch settlements. More spread out, less organized, not aware of what's going on on Manhattan Island. And Pavonia ravaged. Staten Island burnt to the ground. The, the entire settlement on Staten Island will be abandoned at this point in time. So Staten Island history hits the big reset button. And again, Pavonia, which is right about near modern-day Hoboken, New Jersey, again, boom, hit the reset button. We're starting over with European settlement. The great New Sweden historian C.A. Westlager, he called it a three-day orgy of murder, arson, and robbery. As many as 50 Dutch were killed... 100 were taken captive, 28 farms were destroyed, 500 to 600 heads of cattle killed and mutilated. But while the natives were ravaging the extremities of the colony, Stuyvesant returned. And remember, he has this large borrowed army, still roughly under his command, and he's going to use them to put down these native incursions. And he does so successfully to a much better degree than his predecessor Kieft ever did. The colony is not ruined at this point. The colony does not experience mass depopulation at this point. Stuyvesant is successful. He left his power base. He took over New Sweden. He was invaded. He came back fast enough and with enough force to repel that invasion. And New Netherland, for now, will be safe. But some important people were lost in the Peachtree War. Including, including Adrian Vanderdonk, who Russell Shorto writes about extensively in Island at the Center of the World, which is a lovely book. You should read it. Adrian Vanderdonk, of course, is the Yonkers and Yonkers. He is the Yonker himself. He's the man that Yonkers, New York, is named after. It was his land, his farm. And during the Peachtree War, he is killed by natives. Now, that is not exactly clear, but it is known that he died, and some months later, there was a court case involving the returning of two of his Bibles from natives. So clearly his estate was ransacked at, during this period in time. And during that same period in time, Adrian Vanderdonk died. So one can assume he was a casualty of the Peachtree War, although people will argue with you about that. Nevertheless, Adrian Vanderdonk was the, the greatest voice New Netherland had to have a more democratic government. He was the one writing letters, writing books to stimulate immigration, and he was the one petitioning the Dutch West India Company and the Amsterdam Chamber for democratic reforms, right? Remember all these director generals who are so important to the colony that basically every episode of New Netherland is named after a director in my series. He kept writing letters and arguing, listen, I know you're a company, but we're turning into a society here. We're growing. He could see the potential of the colony. And he says, well, we need some more elected assemblies. We need burgomeisters and we need voting in general. We can't just have one dictator in charge of everything. Don't you see that's not going to work? And so this lone voice echoing out for democracy in America, literally at the center of what would be the 13 colonies in the, right there in the middle, he's gone. 
And now, believe it or not, New Netherland is really going to start to boom. But Adrian Vanderdonk will not be there to be part of that. But now let's turn back to the southern part of New Netherland, the former New Sweden. At the time of the takeover, the colony probably had somewhere between 300 and 350 inhabitants. Not very many at all. And Stuyvesant is recorded to have turned back ships that had left Sweden before, before New Sweden was taken over and showed up after it was taken over, and he turned them right back, sent them back to Sweden. But at later times, it's recorded that Swedes were allowed to immigrate to the former New Sweden, now New Netherland. And the population of that area only continued to grow. By fall of the very same year, 1655, the colony had reached 600 inhabitants. Or I should say the former colony of New Sweden, now the southern part of New Netherland, 600 inhabitants. During this period of time, Stuyvesant put a guy named Dirk Schmidt in charge of New Sweden, basically like an underdirector or a vice director, to just be in charge of that portion of it. So one legacy of New Sweden, which we're going to talk about and which you'll see why it's very important, is that the existence of New Sweden inside of what is now called New Netherland in our story, it made it a distinct area. So if Sweden never moved in, this would all just be New Netherland. Now, after the fact, yes, it's all New Netherland, but this section is culturally distinct and it's going to be administered as a distinct part of the colony. Now, this will become later on when things get chunked up into English colonies and then American states. Now, another price that had to be paid by New Netherland. If you remember, this army was borrowed from the city of Amsterdam. Now they had to pay back those debts. So while the army goes back home, Amsterdam sends the bill. And the bill is going to be half of New Sweden. So eventually, New Sweden is cut up roughly in this way. The West India Company is going to control all of New Sweden south of the Christina River. And the city of Amsterdam itself will control everything north of it. Now, this will all still be New Netherland because Amsterdam is part of the Netherlands and the West India Company is part of the Netherlands. But the administration gets a little murky here. Now, all the business going in and out of the Amsterdam portion will, of course, be to the benefit of Amsterdam. And then, of course, the chunk controlled by the West India Company, the trade and taxes and whatever acquired through there would go to the West India Company. But it's all still part of New Netherland and Stuyvesant still has some control over the entirety of it being the director. I believe this is another example, again, of the private investors in the company trying to take big chunks of the company for their own personal gain. Now, if you think about it, the entire colony was basically run by the Amsterdam Chamber of the West India Company. Now, they borrowed an army from the city of Amsterdam, and of course, a lot of the big investors in the Amsterdam Chamber would be the burgomeisters of the city of Amsterdam. And so what people see as kind of a surrendering of half of New Sweden to the city of Amsterdam, really, it's probably a lot of the same people. The same people investing in the West India Company are also going to be the bigwigs in the city of Amsterdam who are now making a profit there also. Um, compare this to the patroonship system, Rensselaerwick, in what is now upstate New York, where Killian Van Rensselaer carved out a big chunk of the colony for himself to increase his own profits from the company. Or compare this to Peter Minuet founding New Sweden in general, where he just took a big chunk of the company and went rogue with it. And so there are multiple examples of when the company sabotages itself. So the Amsterdam portion at various times was generally known as New Amstel. And now one city in particular 
became known as New Amstel, and today we call it Newcastle. You know the place, you love it, it's Newcastle. Now after the initial takeover, and all the paperwork having to be settled, and the war in which the Dutch and the Swedes are going to be on differing sides, we get to a point where the New Netherland realizes, hey, let's encourage more immigration from Sweden. And so Swedish and Finnish immigration to what was once New Sweden didn't stop. And that part of the colony continued to grow for quite a long time. Eventually, and I'm ruining the New Netherlands story for you, eventually the English take over. And when the English took over the area that was roughly New Sweden, they accounted for 110 farms, over 2,000 cows, 20 horses, 80 sheep, untold pigs, and a swelling human population. The Dutch had encouraged these Finnish and Swedish farmers to keep coming over because a lot of the Dutch population were merchants and they didn't want to farm, but they needed food, so it worked to their mutual advantage. Now, this adds up to an important point I'm about to make. So, it's hard to talk about the legacy of something that is poured into something else, right? So, what's the legacy of the Mediterranean Sea as it pours into the Atlantic Ocean? Hard to describe it because it all mixes together. But let's think about this. The best way to think about the legacy of New Sweden in this sense is to get rid of New Sweden and imagine what would have happened. So imagine New Sweden never happened. It was just New Netherland. What would have happened? What would have been the first things to happen way back in the 1650s, 1640s, even 1639? Well, the English rolled in. Remember, I told you about that in a previous episode. If you didn't listen to it, it's your fault. So think about this. Imagine if the Swedes never rolled in. Remember, the directors of New Netherland back then couldn't get rid of the English incursions onto the Delaware by themselves. They needed the Swedish help. It's likely, no, probable, that the Delaware River Valley would have been infested with English settlers decades before they showed up in our timeline. And so without New Sweden, basically the Delaware River Valley and all what all the areas that would become states around it. So we're talking Pennsylvania, we're talking Delaware, we're talking New Jersey, and we're talking about Maryland, portions thereof, not all of those states. All of that area would have been English way before it became English in our history. Now you might be saying, so what? That doesn't matter. Of course it matters. Think about it. Think about this. Imagine if we're, we're talking about a 30 to 40 year difference in the uh, influx of English people. So imagine there's a house you really like and you buy it. Well, your life is going to unfold a certain way having lived there. You're going to meet certain people, maybe marry a different person, different kids, different everything, right? Now imagine instead of you buying your house, buying that house, your grandfather bought that house 40 years beforehand. Well, that's a different story. Just because you're related to that guy or similar to that guy doesn't mean everything stays the same. So the English roll into the Delaware Valley 30, 40 years before they are supposed to in our timeline. What's the difference? Well, they would mostly be from New England. A large portion of them would be Puritans from New England. How does this affect today? Well, if you think about which parts of the United States make up New England, well, it's going to be the parts of the United States that are east of New York. It's going to be Massachusetts. It's going to be Connecticut. It's going to be Rhode Island. It's going to be Vermont as an extension of uh, New England and Maine settled a little later. Well, in our alternative timeline where New Sweden doesn't exist, New England is everything from the New England we know, so Maine, all the way down to the tippy top of the Virginias. Now, all of a sudden, the, um, 
the United States of America looks a little different, doesn't it? Think about it. So New England is this massive chunk of land. And and let's throw a couple other monkey wrenches in there. Because again, if you're living in Delaware right now and someone said you lived in New England, you'd go, I don't live in New England. No, New England's a little different than we are down here. Nope, not in this timeline. This timeline, you're all part of that cultural area. And, you know, if you were born in like Delaware or Pennsylvania, you in this different timeline, you were probably never born at all. Because remember, we have all sorts of different people there now. It's a reshuffling of the deck. So history might be similar, but the people are going to be all different. So we have a trickling effect. It's a butterfly effect. Okay, another point to make. Pennsylvania probably wouldn't exist. So the English king at a certain point grants this large chunk of land to his friend William Penn to start a Quaker paradise, basically where Pennsylvania is today, and the coastal states bordering Pennsylvania. Now, had the English moved in there way sooner, there would have been not as much land or no land to grant to William Penn. Where would he have started his Pennsylvania? I don't know. But it wouldn't be exactly where it is today because that area would have already been infested with English for decades. So instead of the English rolling in in mass in the 1680s, a lot of them Quakers, they would have rolled in 30, 40 years before and would have been Puritans. Different types of people. Just because they both speak English doesn't mean they're the same. So Pennsylvania doesn't exist in this scenario. Keep that in mind. But the effects of all this trickle further north. So now imagine if the English were on the South River, the Delaware, and the English were on the Connecticut, which they are in our timeline. New Netherland, which you know is going to fall to the English eventually, because it's not around today. New Netherland probably would have been a target of perhaps the first Anglo-Dutch War. Or at least they would have been the target of the English a lot sooner than they were during their final demise. So New Netherland, I would argue, might have fallen sooner. Now, what effect does that have? Now, if New Netherland falls sooner, the main core of it, being New York and New Jersey, might have been called something else. The same historical circumstances that we'll learn about in a future episode definitely wouldn't have fallen into place. New York today would probably not be called New York, and neither would New Jersey. Now, that being said, they might not even be separate states. They might be just one large state. Or they could have been devoured completely. Because as we've talked about before, the colonies of Massachusetts and New Haven and Saybrook, a little tiny colony there, and Connecticut, they all wanted to move west, take over the Hudson River Valley. So it's likely that if New Netherland was invaded sooner, and perhaps not by the crown, but by colonists themselves, New York wouldn't exist at all. And Massachusetts would be one big, long state going all the way to, I don't know, Lake Erie? So the, the, the map of the United States is looking quite differently at this point. And to remind you again, the, the physical change in the map represents the physical change of people. Again, if you take out the last 5,000 immigrants to New Netherland and never let them, to, let them migrate there, all of their descendants aren't there. And all of the people they would have married married somebody else and different people exist in their places, both on the Hudson River, in the Hudson River Valley, and the Delaware where New Sweden was. So you have these cascading effects where all of a sudden the entire middle colony area of the 13 colonies is all different. And I know I'm boring you with this, so I'm not going to elaborate any further. But as you can imagine, if four or five or six of the original 13 colonies have radically different shapes, a radically different population, 
Just imagine how history unfolds differently from there. It only gets bigger. The effect only grows. So no, New Sweden and every topic we're going to talk about on this show forever from here on is not an appendix history. It's not, oh, that happened and then the real history started. Oh, that happened and it was a mistake and it fell apart and then we had the real history. It existed. And because it existed, it shapes the world you're living in right now. And perhaps you wouldn't even exist if New Sweden did not exist. It's possible. And depending on your ethnicity and location, it's probable. And so these subjects, New Sweden, the Haudenosaunee, and New Netherland, these aren't mistakes. These aren't uh, failed tries. They are inseparable from your history that you're living right now. I'll get off my stand. I'll get off the pulpit. Now let's... Let's talk about some concrete examples. I'm going to get less abstract. Concrete examples of the legacy of New Sweden. First of all, we're talking about the first Swedish and Finnish immigrants to what will now be the United States today. So that's an important thing. They're going to set a precedent. They're going to establish communities. And of course, you get some level of chain migration. And with these immigrants, you have the foundation of the Lutheran Church in what is now the United States of America. Well, in the North American continent, it is the first Lutheran Church. And now when you have a Lutheran church established, you'll get more migration from areas that are predominantly Lutheran. So large parts of Germany at this time. So you have the establishment of the Lutheran church, the first Protestant denomination, essentially. And you're going to have a future encouragement of people who are Lutheran to America, the colonies, the future United States. So that's a great and hefty legacy that we can put on New Sweden. Now, there's one, one visual I'll give you, and even an elementary school child will understand this. The American Frontier Log Cabin. What? What are you talking about? Why are you bringing up log cabins right now? Well, I'll tell you. Remember how I mentioned to you earlier in a previous episode that New Sweden, they weren't even, even able to make hewn boards for a lot of their history. Well, they didn't necessarily have to. Because the forest fins especially had a tradition of making log cabins. And they introduced this tradition to the United States. Or pff, United States. Look at me. All right, that was an anachronism. They introduced this tradition to the North American continent. As far as we can tell, they were just about the first group to build this style of dwelling in the Americas. Now, this is important because whenever we reach a frontier, okay, when European groups are reaching new areas where Native Americans are being pushed out, we see, in many cases, log cabins. And the origin of the American log cabin. So you're thinking American frontier. You're thinking Abraham Lincoln is among the Finns, these forest Finns, who are mostly forced out of Sweden and placed in New Sweden. So there you go. There's something concrete you could hang your hat on. The American frontier log cabin finds its origin in New Sweden. And what about all those stories of American frontiersmen who went out into the wild, cut down trees, built log cabins, made good relations with the Native Americans, and traded in furs? Well, geez, the, the first group of people to do that were the people of New Sweden. And so the best example, the most peaceful, the least malignant version of American westward expansion is the example set by the Swedes and the Finns. Not a bad legacy. This has been the Other States of America History Podcast. We're saying goodbye to New Sweden, and I'm saying goodbye to you. 
If you like the podcast, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you have anything less than a five-star review, just email me. Just tell me what's wrong with the show. I don't 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 tell other people. It's none of their business. All right. Bye.